Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. This week, we're going to be looking at The Irishman by Steve Zalian, uh, the film directed by Martin Scorsese. And I want to set aside for just a moment the all-star cast. I want to set aside the questions of whether the age enhancement technology was distracting or valuable. Uh, I want to set aside uh, the questions about the pacing of the film, whether it should have been shorter, whether it starts too slow. I want to set aside all of that. I want to set aside the questions about where does this fit in the Scorsese canon. Um, I even want to set aside any questions about whether this is really the true story or there's a different true story. And instead what I want to do is I want to focus and I get really deep on what this film can teach you as a screenwriter. Um, It's a slightly more than three and a half hour long movie. And we could probably teach a 15-hour podcast on this film and still not mine all the value for you as a screenwriter. Um, So what I really want to do is focus on one very important aspect that I think is going to give you the most value as you watch the film or as you re-watch the film to go back in and look at how Steven Zalian's script is actually powering these extraordinary performances. Because this script is a primer on how to write a script to attract an A-list actor. This script is a primer on how to create an unforgettable character. This script is a primer on how to adapt an extremely complicated true story with a man at the center who doesn't seem like the kind of character that you would build a movie around. And to take that film and to create something that is compelling and, uh, and asks a profound question and, uh, and to build it around this vast array of characters that we need to fully understand. And so I want to talk about how Steven Zalian does that. And then I want to show you a really deep dive into uh, what I consider probably the seminal scene in the piece. And I want to show you how Steven Zalian's work in the script allowed the actors to take that same scene and push it to an even higher level. So we're going to get to talk about adaptation and rewriting and the whole process that a film goes through, not just ending at the finished page, but actually how does it transform and shape and end up something even better on the screen. It's important to understand that Frank Sheeran, the character at the center of The Irishman, is an extraordinarily challenging character to build a movie around. This is not Goodfellas. This is not a fun film built around a tragically flawed and open book of a human being. Um, This is a film built around a man who seems like ice, whose, whose primary characteristic is that he doesn't share his emotions that he doesn't allow anyone into what he's feeling, that he is not actually connected to anyone, that he is actually the kind of man who can murder anyone for any reason and not even feel bad about it, not even feel regret. And 
That's an extraordinarily challenging character. Usually when we think about a character, we think about an arc, right? We think about a character who's going to go on a journey of change. And usually we're thinking about a character who's going to go on a positive journey of change. But even if we're building a movie like Good, Goodfellas, we're going to watch a character fall into the vortex, right? We're going to take a relatively good guy and just push him off the edge of the ocean. Um, What's happening in The Irishman is something actually much more challenging and complicated, which is you have a character who is at the center who is not going to change, who might have a tiny glimmer of change towards the very end of the film, but who is never going to have that cathartic moment that you're waiting for, who is so busy protecting something that he doesn't even fully understand that he is never actually going to be able to see himself or step into the kind of change we would normally see for a character. So if you're building a traditional film, you would carefully build the relationship between Frank Sheeran and his daughter Peggy, for example. You would build that relationship because you would know that ultimately, and a tiny little spoiler ahead, but ultimately you would know that, that Peggy is going to stop talking to her father. So knowing that you are going to take the character, this is traditional structure, you were going to take that character on an emotional journey in relation to his daughter, you would really work to build that relationship early to show what that character means to this main character, show what that relationship means to really build it strongly and beautifully so that you could then start to take it apart and we would feel the loss that comes with that. That's traditional structure. If, um, if you were reading Save the Cat, which you guys know is a book that I strongly disagree with, even though there are some, uh, some interesting elements in it, if you were doing Save the Cat, you would let Frank save a cat out of a tree or do something beautiful and wonderful for his daughter to help build that relationship so that we could see that he's a hitman with the heart of gold. And if you think even of another very famous mobster movie like The Godfather, you can see that that's who Michael is at the beginning, right? Traditional structure, here's a good guy, Michael Corleone, such a good guy. He wants to do the right thing. He shows up. He's trying to keep his nose clean. We have some wonderful save the cat moments where, where we get to see that no K, that's my family, not me. We get to see that Michael's a war hero. We get to see that Michael only gets involved because he's trying to save his father's life. We get to see, wow, what a beautiful man. And that's what makes Michael's decline, Michael Corleone becoming the godfather, losing Kay, all that kind of stuff so powerful. That's a traditional structure, right? Where you take a character, you humanize them, you help us see the inside of their heart, you help us understand where their motivation comes from, and you take it on a journey in relation to that. What Martin Scorsese is doing is something so much more complicated. What Steve Zalian is doing is something so much more complicated. What Steve Zalian is doing is saying, well, that ain't true. This particular character is barely aware of his daughter. 
This character leaves one wife and joins another one in a heartbeat without any emotion about it, without any heart-wringing about it. Um, the closest we get to a save the cat moment for, uh, for Frank Sheeran is he finds out that, that a store owner hit his daughter and he drags her to the store and in front of her, he stomps that store owner so badly that his daughter will never look at him the same way again. Um, he doesn't have a single moment of connection with that daughter. In fact, as late in the film, his other daughter will tell him, we couldn't come to you for anything because we knew what you would do to somebody. Who were you protecting, Dad? So we have this character who's the opposite of the traditional tragic hero and the, the opposite of the traditional comic hero. He's not a character who's going on a journey. He's a character who is operating on a completely different operating system than we are. Um, there are so many interesting points of access into a film. There are so many interesting ways to actually figure out what you want to write about. But one of the ways that I find particularly compelling is to take a question that you don't know the answer to and to put that question into a character and to really be truthful with that character, to not push towards a traditional structural uh, shape towards a pop psychology 101 take, towards not pushing to try to tell people why this happens, but instead to genuinely watch the character do what they do and try to figure out what is actually driving them. And I think this is the question that Zalian and Scorsese are asking in this film. And, and I should also mention the, the writer of the book, I Hear You Paint Houses, Charles Brandt, what he's wrestling with in his book. Um, and it's the same question, I think, that if you really stepped into the character of Frank Sheeran, this is the question that Frank is wrestling with in his life, which is, how is it that some people go through their whole lives and never actually really connect? How is it that some people are so detached from themselves that they can kill literally anybody, a person they don't know, a president, their closest friend, that they can actually kill everybody. And how is it possible that, not, that this person could not be the traditional psycho killer, right? Could actually be a person with a conscience who considers himself a good man, who has good intentions to protect other people. How could this happen? And how does this keep happening? How does this keep happening in our society, in our politics? How do these extremely powerful men keep on making these decisions that don't seem to actually serve anybody? How do people get that cut off from their emotions? And you can see if you watch the trajectory of all of these characters, all of these characters fight so hard for something and end up with very little at the end. Very little at the end to show for it other than money. In fact, the visual structure of the piece is literally a laundry list of kills and a laundry list of old men who end up in jail.
and who, despite going through a whole life together, seem to fail to build any connection that goes beyond this strange code that they have between each other, where the need for respect is more important than a human life. And each character has their own take on that, um, which, is, uh, which brings me to a concept that, that uh, is extremely important in screenwriting. Uh, and one that people don't really talk about enough. Everybody talks about the idea, and, and even in this podcast, we talk all the time about the idea that characters need to have a want. But what gets talked about a lot less is that underneath that want, there's something really frickin' powerful called the emotional need. And if you look at every character in The Irishman, what you see is a profound emotional need for respect. For example, we get to watch Joe Pesci's character, Russ Buffalino, kill another mobster, Joe Gallo, for insulting the pin that he wears on his lapel. We get to see how that need for respect transcends everything. Um, so what's really interesting is this is a movie, yes, where everyone has their tangible goals. You know, the mobsters want to be in Cuba. They want to control the unions. They want their loan. And Hoffa wants control of his union. He wants to set his own rules, all that kind of stuff. But what's actually happening with these life and death stakes ain't about any of those goals. It's about this primal, raw, emotional need that every single person in the human race has shared, this need for respect and what happens when it goes wrong. And each character has their own way of dealing with that need in themselves. Um, but for this podcast, I really want to focus on two characters because I want to get into a, a deep discussion of, of this climactic scene. Um, so I really want to focus on the two characters who are actually the strongest connection in this piece. Um, Robert De Niro's character, Frank Sheeran, and Al Pacino's character, Jimmy Hoffa. Um, if we think about Frank Sheeran, Frank Sheeran has a, a mantra a way of looking at the world. And the truth is that, that every character has a way of looking at the world. And when you understand their way of looking at the world, writing them becomes very simple. And understanding how to push them and change them and torture them and connect to them and take them on a journey becomes very, very simple. Once you understand what that character's one thing is, it becomes very, very simple. And if I was gonna name uh, if I was going to name uh, Frank Sheeran's mantra, I would say that mantra is, it is what it is. Frank Sheeran is a guy who believes you do what you are told. You do what is necessary. And you don't complain about it much. It's what it is. If your boss tells you to kill somebody, you don't go, well, is that right or wrong? You do what needs to be done. It's what it is. If you're told to be this guy's friend, you be this guy's friend. 
You don't ask what the politics are or what's right and wrong. It's what it is. If um, some blood needs to be spilled between this point and that point in the war, you don't ask if it's right or wrong. You do what you're told to do. It's what it is. And you can see that from that early scene where Russ and Frank discuss the war, all the way through the final climax of his relationship with Jimmy Hoffa, you could see that he lives by that mantra. It's what it is. And because of that mantra, it's what it is. The truth is he's not able to fully connect to anybody or even to a single human emotion in himself. We can see him genuinely fighting to try to protect his friends, but at the end of the day, it's what it is. And this character isn't going to change because his belief system isn't going to change. And his daughter looks at him and goes, what is it? What is it? What is it? You're saying it's what it is. You're saying this is what I had to do to protect you. You're saying this is what was necessary. But what is it? His daughter's looking at him saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. So you can see how each character has their own point of view. Um, in fact, the human relationship doesn't get built between, uh, between Frank and Peggy, his daughter. Instead, it gets built between Peggy and Jimmy. And this is just some good structural screenwriting. This is, is the, uh, the writer knowing, hey, and again, there's going to be a small spoiler. <laughs> there's going to be a spoiler ahead. But if you've done any research on this film, you already know what's going to happen. Um, Peggy connects with Jimmy like he was her own father and gets the emotional relationship from him that she can't get from Frank. And that makes the moment of betrayal when Frank kills Jimmy even more powerful. It helps us understand why that's the moment where she says enough is enough. This is not what it is for me. So you have this one main character whose primary mantra is one of acceptance. It is what it is. You can't change the world. There are people in power and people with no power. And the best you can do is to go along with the system. And if you play by their rules and you do what they want, then you'll go pretty far. That's his belief about the world. And it is an extraordinarily dark belief. And it's one of the reasons why this film is so hard to watch, so bleak and depressing, because at its center, there is a nihilistic worldview. It is what it is. Jimmy Hoffa also has his own worldview. Now, it's interesting because Robert De Niro sees himself as a low man on the totem pole, right? He's the guy who doesn't need respect, but he's going to show respect to others. And he's going to make sure that others get the respect that they deserve. It is what it is for him. Some people are going to respect you. Other people are not. But if we look at Jimmy Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa needs respect. Al Pacino's character needs respect. And if you watch Al Pacino's performance, you can see how literally every little tiny moment is driven by that need for respect. You can see the actor acting that need for respect. Um, but the, the actor and the writer together take that emotional need that's a general need and turn it into some very, very specific things.
Al Pacino's also got his one thing. Jimmy Hoffa's also got his one thing. And his one thing is, this is my union. In fact, he says it several times. This is my union. It's very simple when you see it that way. And that's a little note, not only for the character, but for the writer. This is my union. It's very simple when you see it that way. Just like it is what it is. It's very simple when you see it that way. You see, these are actually two different points of view in the world. One character says it is what it is. The other character says, this is my union. This is my union. And if you just understand that one thing about Jimmy, you can write Jimmy forever. If you just understand that the one thing that is always in Jimmy's mind is this is my union. You can do anything else, but this is my union. You can ask me to corrupt myself in a million ways. You can ask me to play games or organize crime. You can ask me to, to make loans to, to gangsters. Fine. This is my union. And that allows you to know structurally, how do you torture Jimmy? You attack his control of his union. You attack his feeling that this is his union. Um, we know about Jimmy. Jimmy needs people to show up on time for meetings. You know why? Because this is my union. I've never waited more than 10 minutes. This is my union. Show up on time. Jimmy needs people to not wear shorts to a meeting. Because this is my union. Show up on time. Don't wear shorts. Show me respect. This is my union. Do you see how all these little quirks and ticks help you understand who this character is. And if you actually look at the structure of Jimmy's journey, Jimmy chooses to lose his life rather than showing up for a meeting with a guy who showed up late and wears shorts. Why? Because Jimmy sees things from one very simple lens. This is my union. So does this mean all your characters need to be megalomaniacal? No, not at all. In fact, if Jimmy had gone on a journey where he was to let go of the union, to pass the torch, to change, to do something different, wow, we would feel the structure of that journey. Does this mean that Jimmy can't have other aspects of his personality? Of course he can. He has a beautiful relationship with Peggy. He loves ice cream. He doesn't like to drink. He hates watermelon. He has a full, full rainbow of desire, as Augusta Boal would say. He has a full landscape, a full interior landscape. It's that one simple thing, though, this is my union, that provides the drumbeat for the character. And as you're writing, you may wake up one day and just know, oh my God, I get this character. This is the drumbeat. Or it may take you the whole damn script to figure out what that drumbeat is. It may take you writing the script to really understand not what are the many things, but what is the one thing that holds it all together? What's the Captain Crunch Dakota ring that you can fish out from the box and actually see the character clearly? So. If you don't know what that thing is, don't try to impose one. Get curious because the character already has a thing, just like you already have a thing. 
And it doesn't mean that that's going to be your thing forever. It's just your thing right now. And just like it doesn't have to be these characters' things forever. It just happens to be these characters' things right now. So you've got it is what it is versus this is my union. And you can see how just understanding those things lets you know that we are into trouble. And what the writers do so beautifully, what Steve Zalian does so beautifully, is to build that relationship between Jimmy and Frank. To build Jimmy's absolute trust in Frank. And to build Frank's total love and devotion towards Jimmy. What we get to do is to watch Frank try the whole damn movie to show Jimmy that it is what it is, that it's not your union. And we watch Jimmy the whole time try to help Frank understand, no baby, it ain't what it is, I say what it is. This is my union. And that struggle culminates in an extraordinarily powerful scene between Frank and Jimmy. Uh, Joe Pesci's character, Russ, has basically just got word from the higher-ups that this is it. That there is no going back. That either Jimmy is going to come around and stop pushing back and do what they want, let them control him, or they are going to kill him. And Jimmy thinks that he's untouchable. And Frank knows that anybody's touchable. As Russ says in the previous scene, if they can kill a president, don't you think they can kill the president of a union? You know it, and I know it. So as we enter this scene, some beautiful work has been done. There's also been some really lovely preparatory work earlier. Um, there's a wonderful scene where uh, we get an explanation from Frank of what a little worried means versus what seriously worried means in mafia terminology. And so we, uh, as we get to hear uh, Frank express to Jimmy, I'm a little worried, we have a wonderful resonance with that previous scene where we go, oh man, the shit is hitting the fan. And Jimmy is refusing to get it. And I'm going to do something that I don't usually do, but I'm actually going to read two different versions of this scene to you. Um, the first is uh, a version of the scene that's written in the original script. Um, and if you want to read along, you can go to my website, writeyourscreenplay.com slash theirishman, and you can view the, the transcript of this podcast. And right at the top, we'll have embedded a, um, a copy of both scenes so you can read along. Um, the first is actually copied and pasted from the script. The second is transcribed without any real formatting or action. Um, it's just a transcription of the dialogue because I wanted to show you where this scene began and then what this scene evolved into. So I want you to see these two different versions of the scene and see how the rewrite of this scene actually got built out of these concepts that we've been talking about. Because once you understand what the thing is for your character, once you understand the thing is for each character, 
Um, it allows you to start to focus your rewrites, but it also starts to allow you to play within the scene, to riff on the thing that's driving each character in your film. So I'm going to read the first version of this scene first. And as I read it, you're going to notice that it's quite different than the ultimate scene that you probably saw when you watched The Irishman. Frank says, I spoke to Russell. He just spoke to Tony. He means what he's saying. Who, Russell? Tony. Well, I mean what I say. Well, this is probably seeming very similar to you right now. He can't seem to get that through his fat fucking Sicilian head. Jimmy continues, don't look so concerned. Frank says, I'm a little concerned. Jimmy says, they should be concerned, not you. Frank says, they are. They're more than a little concerned. There's widespread concern. Tony told Russell to tell me to tell you what it is. Jimmy looks at Frank. Jimmy says, they wouldn't dare. Don't say that, Jimmy. Something funny happens to me. I got stuff ready to go to the press, to the right people. To me, something's going to be done to them. And those guinea motherfuckers know that. They know I know things that I know. They know I know things they think I don't know. Frank says, Jimmy, what am I supposed to do? I got to go back and tell the old man what? That you're still not listening to him? He ain't used to people not listening to him. Neither am I. Frank says, then I don't know. You should maybe keep some bodies around for protection. Jimmy says, I'm not going to go that route. They could go after my family. You should keep some bodies around. They could go after you since you're with me. Jimmy says, tell Russ I got nothing but respect for him. I would never hurt him, but this is my union. So this is a pretty damn good scene. You can see the struggle between these two characters. You can see these two characters fighting for what they want. Um, you can see that Frank is fighting to protect his friend, and you can see that Jimmy's not getting it. But I want to show you and I'm not sure who did this rewrite. I'm not sure if this is a rewrite that happened through improvisation between these actors or whether this is something that Zalian did on set. I, I don't actually know the story behind it. But I want to read you the more extended version of this scene that actually ends up in the movie. And this is unusual. Usually in a rewrite, if your scene is getting longer, it's usually getting worse. Usually if your scene is getting shorter, it's getting better. But what you actually end up getting to see in this scene is two world-class actors playing around inside the superstructure of what the writer has already done and actually expanding the scene. Now, if you're not Steve Zalian and you don't have three and a half hours, what you would do after doing this kind of expansion is you would squeeze it back down, getting those great little changes. So you can almost think of it like an accordion. You fill the accordion with air and then you squeeze it out when you get that perfect note. It's a way of making more of a scene that's already good or getting more life into a scene that's maybe a little bit average. But in this film, because they have all the time in the world, because it's Netflix and Scorsese and Zalian and Pacino and De Niro and Pesci, um, they don't ever squeeze it back down. They just let them play. And it is just a tour de force scene between two of the great actors of their generation. 
So notice the differences here. Starts the same way. Jimmy, I talked to Russ. He talked to Tony. He means what he's saying. Who, Russ? No, Tony. Tony, yeah. Well, I mean what I'm saying. He can't seem to get that through his fat fucking Sicilian head, can he? Don't worry about it. What's the matter with you? So you can see this is just a little tiny change here. Um, the little tiny change is don't worry about it. What's the matter with you? But what that does is it focuses the human connection rather than just the business connection here. And it also helps highlight this wonderful moment where Frank first says, I'm concerned. Jimmy says, yeah, I know you look concerned. What are you concerned about? Uh, another tiny little change. Uh, but we get that game of what are you concerned about as if Jimmy doesn't even understand, as if Jimmy's reassuring Frank. They should be concerned. So you can see what's happening here. This is a tiny little rewrite, but what it's actually doing is it's taking a scene that in the first draft was primarily focused on the object, the target, right? Uh, Frank wants to stop Jimmy from getting himself killed. Jimmy wants to preserve his union. And it just gives a little tweak to really focus on the caring dynamic between these two characters and the game that's happening between them, where instead of taking the bait, Jimmy keeps playing the game of trying to make Frank feel better. Frank says, they are, they are. They're more than a little concerned. And you can see here's that wonderful resonance again with that earlier scene where we find out what a, a little concerned means. There's widespread concern. And then he continues a little longer than last time. It's a big problem. Uh, and then we're back in. Tony told the old man to tell me to tell you it's what it is. Now, here's what I want you to notice. In the previous draft, Frank says, Tony told Russell to tell me to tell you what it is which is just a dialect way of saying, hey, to tell you what the deal is. But in this draft, the line is focused, and it's focused around that central premise of the way that Frank sees the world. It's what it is. That's the line that Ross, Frank's mentor, says to him in the previous scene. And it's the line that Frank passes on to Jimmy here. It's what it is. And then a wonderful little game happens, which is it's what it is becomes the code for murder. For they're going to kill you. In the previous scene, the same idea is happening, which is to tell you here's where we're at, to tell me, to tell you what it is. But in the rewrite, to tell you it's what it is. And just in case you didn't get it, watch how long they play with it. What it is, it's what it is. Please listen to me. Do you see that little riff there? That we actually get that idea of it's what it is hit four times. So that it's what it is becomes the coined phrase for they're going to kill you. Um, this is a way of exploding cliché. We have seen a million scenes where a character threatens another character. But that little tweak of making it's what it is stand in as the euphemism for what the character is actually saying gives us a feeling like, hey, I understand mob talk now.
And it gives us a feeling of, I've never heard this scene happen this way. Jimmy says, now we're back on track again. They wouldn't dare. They wouldn't dare. Frank, please, Frank, come on. And you can see once again, please, Frank, come on. We're back into that personal level that's heightening this scene. Frank says, don't say they wouldn't dare. Frank, don't tell me that kind of, that's fairy tale. Frank, don't say wouldn't dare. So again, you can see that they're expanding this scene to really focus on that personal dynamic, to really focus on it's what it is, to really focus the theme of the, that drives the character around the, the, the structure of the scene they're building. Then we get this monologue, but with some changes. Something funny happens to me. They're dumb. You understand that. You can see that's new. And they know it because I've got files, I got proof, I got records, I got tape. Anytime I want, they'll be gone, these guinea motherfuckers, spend the rest of their lives in jail, and they know it, they know it. Do you see that slight adjustment to that monologue and how that focuses it? Frank says, what you're saying is what they're concerned about. And you can see this is also a new line. In the previous version, Jimmy, what am I supposed to do? But in this line, it's coming back to, it's what it is. What you're saying is what they're concerned about. What I'm saying is I know things. I know things they don't know I know. Please. And you can see how that focus, that longer version, that more complicated version down to one line there. I know things they don't know I know. Please. Are you going to take that chance? What chance am I going to take? Why should I be taking a chance? This is it. They're saying this is it, then it's it. Bullshit, bullshit, Frank. Do you see what's happening? They're really highlighting in this rewrite that this is the turning point. This is not just another ongoing discussion. It's what it is. This is it. Frank says, I'm trying to tell you something. Jimmy says, I know you are. You're telling me they're threatening me. And I've got to do what they say. And you can see the power dynamic shifts again here. For the first time, Jimmy admits, yeah, I get, I get it. I get exactly what you're saying. You're saying they're threatening me, and I've got to do what they say. And he's not concerned at all. Which is why Frank says, but it's more than a threat. It's the bottom line. Bottom line, it's what it is. Do you see? They've actually hit that it's what it is again and again and again and again and again. They're hitting it with a sledgehammer. And this is one of the lessons that I learned as I got more experience as a writer. When I started out, I always wanted to be so damn subtle. I wanted to keep everything so subtle and elegant, thinking the more subtle I was, the stronger of a writer I would be. But as I became more experienced, I realized um, you have to hit things really hard for them to land. And sometimes the thing that feels really subtle to you is not even registering for your reader. And you can see that that first scene that I read you was perfectly good, but this scene is so climactic because you can really feel the culmination of this argument about is it what it is or not? They do something to me, I do something to them. That's all I know. I don't know anything else. Do you? That's what Jimmy responds. And then we're back in the scene again. So what am I going to do? What am I going to tell McGee? That you're not going to listen? He ain't used to people not listening. Well, neither am I. What? Neither am I. And you can see just playing with that a little bit allows us to punctuate it. Then I don't know what to do. 
Maybe you should get some bodies around you. And now we're back in the scene. I'm not going to go that route. Don't you do this to me, Frank. What do you mean bodies around me? I don't need you put bodies around you. Then they go after your family. It doesn't matter. You worried? You see what's happening here? We're actually back in the game again. It's the same idea, but we're really amplifying the game in this rewrite. Frank says, I'm worried. Jimmy says, get some bodies around you. You see that game? He comes back to the idea of Jimmy is going to reassure Frank. Get some bodies around you. I'll tell you why. This could happen to you. They could come after you since you're with me. No? And do you see how great that is? Because it's really setting up that Jimmy doesn't realize that his best friend has something missing in him that Jimmy does not have missing in himself. Jimmy has a capacity to allow his emotions to change his actions. Whereas for Frank, it's what it is, which is why Frank responds, I'm worried. And then the scene gets even deeper. Tell Russ I got nothing but respect for him. Now you can see that's the same line we have in the previous scene. I had a little trouble with him. We were talking before and I just got a little crazy. You know how I am. We were talking before, I just walked away like that. But I get that way. I get abrupt. Do you see what happens? For one moment, and this again is a deepening of the scene, for one moment, um, Jimmy realizes, oh my God, I know what he's upset about. It's that respect thing that I didn't give him. It's that respect thing. And for a moment, he almost looks at himself and goes, wow, wow, I understand why this guy's upset. And then he goes, ah, it's fine. I get abrupt. Maybe you could just tell him how much I respect him. I have nothing but respect for this guy. I would never hurt him, no matter what I do with files or whatever I do with anything. So you can see this is Jimmy now going, oh shit, dude, Frank, you're my friend. Fix this for me. Help them understand. Help them understand they're safe, because I know I might have spoken too far before. And Frank says, look, but you should tell him. Jimmy says, no, I'm not going to tell him. Oh, come on. It would go a long way. Do you see what's happening here? This scene that started as a great scene becomes a superb scene because the writer keeps playing with the game of the scene. The game of the scene is that Jimmy is going to reassure Frank, even though Frank's the one who's trying to warn him. At this moment, we get a new structural change, which is that Frank's concern finally registers with Jimmy. But instead of making a change, Jimmy asks Frank to fix it. Frank says, it would go a long way. And Jimmy says, he's your rabbi. Because of him, you're here. You tell him, listen to me, at the end, there's only one thing that's real. Listen to that line again. At the end, there's only one thing that's real. This is my union. This is my union, Frank. Very simple when you see it that way. Do you see the difference between, let me just compare that previous version. Tell Russ I got nothing but respect for him. I would never hurt him, but this is my union. Do you see how soft that is compared to you tell him, listen to me, at the end, there's only one thing that's real. This is my union. This is my union, Frank. Very simple when you see it that way. 
Once you know your character's thing, you know your character's thing is active at every moment. Once you know what's driving them, once you know the, the thing that shapes everything they see in the world, everything they do, you know where to attack them, you know where to push them, you know how to rewrite your scenes, and you know how to take a perfectly good scene like the one that I showed you, which was good enough to get all the way to the shooting draft and turn it into the kind of scene that transforms a movie, transforms a performance, and builds that kind of climactic experience that you're trying to build as a writer. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. For a full transcript of this podcast, as well as our full library and information on our New York City and online classes, workshops, and events, please check out my website, writeyourscreenplay.com.